So first, I want to thank you for your hospitality, for your warm welcome this weekend. My heart is full. If you've missed the Sunday school hour and you're wondering who the stranger is at your pulpit, I'm Jeff Bischoff, ordained by North Point Baptist Church of Chandler, Arizona, now known as Mission Bible Church in Mesa, Arizona. But more recently, I serve on active duty in the assigned battalion chaplain for 31st Engineers in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. My promotion to captain is a year old last week, so I'm fairly junior as an officer, but I began as an enlisted man 23 years ago and have served 12 years of active duty with credit for an additional eight reserve years and three enlisted specialties and one officer specialty, namely chaplain, across five presidential administrations, three continents, two service components, and five designated hostile fire zone countries. I joined as a heathen, but one day in February 2008 in Sadr al-Yusufiyah, Iraq, out by the diesel generator at Patrol Base Warrior Keep, I gave my life to Jesus Christ, and he has been faithful to hold fast to me and to empower me to hold fast to him. My Lord called me into ministry, and as he clarified my calling, he narrowed it for me to missionary work. So I started preparing for foreign service in Europe or South America or even Southwest Asia on the Arab Peninsula out of a desire to serve some of the Muslims that I'd recently seen in my combat tours, but I kept hearing my missions professors talk about this thing called indigenous missionaries, the missionaries that receive training in pastoral and ministerial duties and then return to their tribe. And the data that they presented indicated that missionary success, which I define as faithful ministry of the word across time, that missionary success was higher that the gospel impact was deeper and wider when the work of evangelism was placed in the hands of well-trained natives because people naturally find it easier to relate to those that are like them in some way and generally more likely to listen to voices that speak to them in ways that they understand. Certainly, there are exceptions. There are notable exceptions from history and even now. But having spent considerable time among the tribal society of Sadr al-Yusufiya, Iraq, where your father's name was more important than your skill set when it came to getting a hearing, I could see the value of the idea of indigenous, native, missionary work. And while I did my studies, at that point serving in the National Guard, God started to hammer home to me that I should be an indigenous missionary, that I should return to my tribe. You see, I'm an American, sure, but I'm from a tr small sub-tribe of Americans, the U.S. military, and from an even smaller sub-sub-tribe, the U.S. Army. I speak the language as a native. I dress as a native. I understand the customs and interlocking rule sets as a native. So when I surrendered to military chaplaincy, I did so with the heart and mind of a missionary. And in this endeavor, I am joined by my wife, Julie, our three kids, Asher Levi, Hannah Ruth, and Ezra Zechariah, who are ages 9, 7, and 5 right now, and you may have noticed that uh, we named them chronologically through the Bible, but we didn't get to the New Testament, but that's okay. We have a dog named Titus. <laughs> Pastor Tim asked for a military speaker to come this week weekend, which is due in part to the proximity of Veterans Day. And when I saw that y'all were a short road trip away, I felt called and burdened to volunteer. Now, as a stranger, a brother in Christ, yes, but a stranger to all of you, I faced a strong temptation to come out here and put together a real humdinger of a flashy, shiny sermon to really bring the bells and whistles to show you just how smart I am. Maybe I'd pick a really complicated text of scripture and open it to you in a way that would make you say, wow, 
But as I prayed and I thought about it, I kept finding myself returning to Matthew chapter 9, those last four verses about the Lord of the harvest, and I'd turn away from it. I wouldn't even read it. I'd try to think of some other part of Scripture that would be beneficial to you folks today because it seems to me like every visiting missionary to my college chapel chose that text to preach, and I figured that if any given missionary-friendly congregation heard from Matthew 9 again, they'd smile and nod politely like they always do and then go about their business but mostly think, ah, same old, same old. But brothers, sisters, I kept coming back to it. I'd open an Internet browser. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, but I'm, I'm tech-savvy a little bit. I go to my online Bible, or I'd, I'd, I'd pull out my phone to study, to my, my study Bible app, and my fingers would just hover over Matthew, and finally I said, okay, Lord, I'll read it. I'll read it, but no promises. And it turns out that God's smarter than I am. See, first, all the times that I had heard this passage preached, I hadn't paid nearly as close attention as I should have. And second, the practical applications that grow naturally from it are much more robust than I ever understood as a college freshman and sophomore. So let's read it together today. You've heard it once from the Gospel of Matthew, ninth chapter, 35th verse. Hear now the words of the true and living God. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest, thus far as the word of the living God. Now, you're going to notice this anyway, so I might as well warn you up front, I'm not a three points in a poem kind of guy. I've heard from a lot of men who do great work with that type of format, but I can't operate that way. So I hope you'll grab your walking stick and come together with me for a while as we walk through this. Because first, we've got to catch the context. Ninth chapter of Matthew. We're going to fly by the whole thing real quick. Shows Jesus traveling around the region of the city of Capernaum a region familiar to him, a place where he was known, where he was recognized. And while there, Jesus healed many. And the healing ministry that he did, it wasn't random. It wasn't just to make the people say, wow. It wasn't for the simple purpose of getting himself fame and reputation. This ministry of healing that he did, we see clearly, was for the purpose of establishing his authority, even of establishing his Identity. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. The parallel passage that you find in Mark chapter 2 gives us some detail that helps us flesh out the scene. But if you put it together, you see this. Jesus is in a house surrounded by a press of people. And the friends of this paralyzed man are so desperate to get him that they remove part of the roof to lower their ailing friend on a mat to Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith sees the true and trusting faith of the men on the roof, sees it by their actions. Let's not miss that. When James says in his epistle, second chapter, 22nd verse, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. We see an example of that right here. We see these men acting acting in accordance with James when he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. And Jesus says to that man, he he doesn't say get up and walk. Not yet. No, he says, son, Your sins are forgiven. And some men grumble about this. They call it blasphemy. And in Mark chapter 2, we see that charge of blasphemy broadened. We see it explained. They ask, 
Who can forgive sins but God only? And these grumblers, they're not wrong. They were asking the right question. Who can forgive sin? Only the one sinned against. If I do wrong to my wife, I can't seek forgiveness from my dog. But if I do wrong to my wife in sinning against her, have I not also sinned against someone else? Think, King David fornicated with Bathsheba, and in doing so, he sinned against her and also against her husband, Uriah. And then David arranged the death of Uriah, murder by proxy, another sin against Uriah. And in that plot, he enlisted the help of his confidant, Joab, making Joab an accomplice in the crime and therefore staining the soul of Joab too. So David sinned against Joab. And since he did all of this as the king of Israel in his office as king of Israel, he blackened the name of God's entire nation. So he sinned against all Israel. But when David characterizes his sin in Psalm 51, how does he do it? In verse 4, he says, Against thee, my God, my righteousness, my strength, against thee only have I sinned. So you've got to hand it to these grumbling scribes and Pharisees. They know some theology. All sin is against God, and therefore, in the final sense, in the final sense, only God can forgive sin. And you know how Jesus answered. It wasn't, oh, you know, you're right, boys, I shouldn't have said that. No. And it wasn't, you know what, you're just going to have to take my word for this. That's not what he said. No, what he said was, what's the easier thing to say? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or take up your mat and walk. And he let that sit for a couple of beats. And then he said to that man, But, but, that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. And he pointed to that man on the mat and he said, Arise, take up thy bed and go unto thine house. And then the man continued to lie there in his own filth and weakness. No, he got up and went home. Jesus willed to heal that man, and Jesus willed to forgive his sins. Jesus displayed divine authority, authority equal to God. Listen, the very authority of God in that moment. And he displayed divine will, will equal to God, the very will of God. And I know this isn't the passage we're aimed at today, but get that in there. Get the authority and the will of the God-man in your heart, because that's the string that unties the whole knot of the passage that we're at, passage we're actually heading for today. Flying through the rest of chapter 9, we see he calls Matthew to serve. He answers a question on fasting. Both of those are worthy of a sermon themselves, but mostly he heals. A woman with a chronic bleeding disorder touches his clothes, and she becomes well. And because of the nature of her ailment, she becomes ceremonially clean for the first time in 12 years. And let's not miss that that swift event happened while Jesus was on his way to raise a little girl from the dead. And two blind men and a mute guy. In the span of one visit, the dead rise, the lame walk, the blind see, the dumb speak, and the unclean are made clean. And then we arrive at our passage. There are some parts of scripture that require a lot of work to apply to our own situation. If you ever preach through the book of Esther sometime, you'll know what I really mean. You've got to do rigorous historical, cultural work to understand what normal looks like versus what Mordecai and Esther were doing. Then you've got to look backwards through the lens of the gospel, then forward again through biblical history to arrive at the answer to the question of what does this mean I should do on any given Tuesday morning? But here, not so much. 
Here I'm convinced that every part of the passage is directly applicable in ways that are so nearly one-to-one -one that the bits left sticking out can be easily folded into your suitcase. So let's see it. Verse 35. Jesus went about teaching. Teaching where? In the synagogues. He went about proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. He went about healing what? Every manner of disease, every manner of affliction. But when he saw the multitudes, it says, note this conjunction, but, it's not a strong adversative. It's not like, I love cheese, but, I don't care for Swiss cheese. It's not like Jesus was doing and thinking one thing, but then he started doing and thinking another thing. It's not trying to tell us that Jesus was teaching, preaching, healing, but then he saw these multitudes and he stopped and changed what he was doing. No, that's not what this is about. These were the multitudes he was seeing as he was doing his teaching, as he was doing his preaching, and as he was doing his healing. As he went about the villages of this area, he saw these multitudes, and he felt compassion for them because they were weak, they were scattered, they were leaderless. Now listen, by, in the most general way, in the simplest way, by teaching, proclaiming, and healing, what was Jesus doing in the most general way? He was going about his business. He was going about the business to which he was called. You too go about the business to which you are called every day. You fulfill your callings as husband or as wife or mom or dad or daughter or son. You fulfill your callings as student or teacher or business person of whatever kind, and you see multitudes. Let's take it out of the realm of the faceless crowd. I bet some of you are thinking of a face right now. Maybe several faces, people who are weak and weary, lacking a shepherd, lacking the Shepherd, lacking the only shepherd that matters, lacking a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of that face. Think of those faces. Your Lord saw the multitudes, and he was moved with compassion on them. Are you? I'm thinking of a face right now. He's a young man, an immigrant from Ethiopia. He's a lifelong member of the Ethiopian Orthodox Christian church and as part of a formal interview I had to con conduct with him for an administrative action I had him describe his version of Christianity to me he believes in the Apostles Creed amen M me too if we define it rightly but his answer to how does a person inherit eternal life is so very complicated he fasts twice a week Every week, he fasts from animal products for the entire 40-day period of Lent. Anytime he knows he has sin, he has to undergo a purification ritual with an Orthodox priest that is effectively an additional baptism by effusion. This young man at age 25 has been baptized dozens, if not hundreds, of times. He abstains at all times from foods declared unclean by Moses, and he keeps his beard unshaven because an Ethiopian Orthodox Christian from his tradition must wear a beard until death as a proclamation to God of his own uncleanness. His beard stays until he dies. And then the priest shaves his dead face as part of the ceremony of last rites. He was talking to me to help him seek an accommodation from the army to start growing his beard again because he's legitimately afraid that if he were to die right now due to some military training accident or some other disaster, that God, finding him shaved prior to death, would not allow him to enter into the blessed kingdom. Freedom in Christ does not enter into it for that man. He's buried under so many burdens, I don't even know how he stands up. 
I see the twisted pharisaical version of Jesus Christ that he tries to serve in my head and my heart hurts for him. Who are the multitudes that God has placed in your path? The ones you pass every day doing your business. None of you are hermits. Who do you pass every day? Co-workers, people standing in line while you're standing in line, your own children, friends of your children, parents of the friends of your children. Are your eyes sharp? Is your heart awake? It's easy for our hearts to become dull and uncompassionate. Brothers, sisters, that is sin. Foundationally, it's the sin of unbelief. Unbelief in the power of Almighty God to change hearts through His Holy Spirit. Fight it. Put it to death. By the power of the Spirit, as John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Seek God's face to believe what Jesus knew to be true. Listen to him. He said, the harvest truly is plenteous. Do you believe it? Do you believe God's remnant remains scattered and fainting and shepherdless, but nevertheless ready for harvest? These last few months of chapel service where I minister, I'm part of a team of five men. We take turns preaching. We're going through John right now. And we're a mixed bag of Baptistic believers. We got four different flavors of Baptist and an Assemblies of God guy. But uh, by God's grace, we're faithful to the word of truth. And listen, the young men and the women that we serve are hungry. This spring and summer and into now, last week even, we do two services a Sunday, preaching the word of God and the saving power of Jesus Christ. And we've often been full. Full. Main Post Chapel, Fort Leonard Wood, has a capacity of 1,300, and we've been full such that we've had to turn people away from both services to remain in compliance with military fire code. And we had a slow day last week when our second service only had 700 in it. We've baptized over 100 new converts in the last year, and I've counseled with at least 500 on an individual basis in the last year. And look, I know they're a mixed bag, too. I know some will show themselves by their pattern of life and their pattern of belief to be false converts. I know some come to the chapel service just to get a brief escape from mean old drill sergeants. I know some come to chapel service in hopes of sitting next to that special someone that they admire from a distance but can't talk to because of anti-fraternization regulations. I know some come for the feeling that unbelievers can siphon sideways from a congregation that's on fire for God. I know that those and other spurious attenders exist. But listen, if even a tenth, if even a tithe of these go forward in faith, then my tribe, my green wearing flag waving tribe will see an outward rippling harvest that changes lives for the gospel. And as those young privates grow into some rank, those ripples will go wider and deeper than ever. I can see, I can see that the harvest is plenteous. Can you see it? Jesus said the laborers are few. Amen. Amen. Even where our Lord Jesus has many people, even when he has a majority of this town or that village in some cases, even where the people belong to the Lord or claim to, the laborers are few. The laborers remain few, the ones actually out doing work. You know what I mean. I'll drive by a work crew sometimes and see five men with shovels and three of them are leaning on the shovels while two work. And look, that's fine. Folks need a break. You need rest. Got it. But if I'm driving back along that same road a few hours later and it's the same three leaning on the shovel and the same two doing the work, then, well, maybe that work crew truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Are you a laborer? 
Look, I'm not talking about those very few who put bread on their family table by doing the work of the Lord like I do, like your pastor does. I'm not talking about those very few because, look, neither is Jesus. He's talking to his closest disciples. He's talking to the men who will be those who eat bread by the work of the word. But if we may take the rest of the New Testament as an indication of who labors in the field of the Lord, then Jesus is certainly talking about all of you. Are you a laborer? The Lord needs nothing from you. But Pastor Tim needs you to be a laborer. I need you to be a laborer. Where I sit as a battalion chaplain on my best day, I'm outnumbered 500 to 1. When I meet one laborer, I rejoice. A young man in my Bravo company, he's gone on to graduation. He's out in the Army somewhere. But he came up to me late winter, early 2021, and we talked. Let's call him Jones. It's not his name, but it'll do. Our conversation went about like this. Chappie, I've been coming to service, and I heard you preach that Christ is the keeper of his people. How do I become one of his people? I preached Psalm 121 that week, and it sounded like he actually listened. And time was short. It often is. Sometimes I get only maybe two minutes to talk to somebody before they have to go to the firing line or a practice patrol or something. So I said it short. Jones, repent and believe. Repent means turn away from your own way of doing things, recognizing that everything you do comes from a place of evil and selfishness. It also means turning to the new. Turn to Jesus Christ. Turn to his way and believe. Believe that Jesus lived the life that you couldn't, died the death that you should have, and that God raised him victoriously from the dead. And he said, okay, chappy, something I can read during my downtime in the Bible you all gave me? I said, it's a toss-up for me between John and Matthew. Just pick one and read it front to back. He thanked me, and he headed off, and I didn't see him for a couple of weeks. I ran into him again in passing, and he said, well, I read John and then Matthew. Jones had read them both. Lord bless him. And he had more to ask. Chappie, I heard you preach about justification two Sundays back, so, uh, so I read Romans. Then I read Genesis to learn more about Adam because Romans talked about him. What should I, what should I read next? I thought a bit, and I said, okay, I got a hard one for you. Read Leviticus. I want you to see specifically how crushing, how heavy is the burden of the law that Christ carried for us. And he said, oh, I read that too. At this point, I figured I'd give him a stumper. I said, okay, okay, how about Isaiah then? Look in there and see how Isaiah foretells a future glory for God's people, including the work of Jesus Christ 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. And he said, thanks, chappie. I read that one, too, and then I did Acts after it. I don't know what to tell him at this point, except, Jones, you've read some of the longest, most difficult parts of Scripture. At this point, you might as well read the whole thing. Just start in Exodus, skip what you've already read. Every book is valuable, though some might be tough to see why at first glance. And he nodded, I will. So I'm a week later, and he said, Chappie, I'm still working on it. I'm in Chronicles right now. And I had more time to talk that day, so I asked some questions. Jones, what made you read Genesis and Leviticus and Isaiah? He said, Chappie, you weren't around. I know you're a busy man, but in my platoon, there's a guy named Smith. Smith told me to read Acts and Genesis and Leviticus and Isaiah. I asked him, what else did Smith say to you? He said, Smith said I should get baptized. So I asked Jones four questions, the four questions I ask of any new convert. I asked, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? 
Do you believe that Jesus Christ is co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, eternally one God in three persons? Do you repent of your sins and commit to trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation? And do you covenant today to follow and obey Jesus all your life, seeking his holiness through the word of God to the best of your ability as helped by the power of the indwelling spirit of God? And he said yes to all four. I baptized him. in a military diver swimming pool about a week later. And when Jones graduated from his basic training class, I attended like I always do. And afterwards, I went out into formation. I looked around until I found Smith. And I shook Smith's hand, and I thanked him for the work of the Lord he'd been doing in Bravo Company. May the Lord increase his drive. And I thank God for Private Smith. He did the work of a laborer out in a field that God had assigned to me, seeing to things that were away from my sight and out of my ability to, to impact or control. And Jones wasn't the only one Smith got to. I asked around and learned that a group of over a dozen men across two platoons had started a nightly Bible study and prayer group, which had ripple effects all the way through Bravo Company for the entire duration of that training cycle. Thank God for Private Smith. Thank God for that quiet, humble laborer. He got not a dime of extra pay for what he did. In fact, he sacrificed time when he could have been sleeping, and trust me, sleep is like money in basic training. Time when he could have been studying for tasks or writing letters to his family, and I know his reward will come. But the laborers, they're few. Are you? Are you a laborer? Jesus saw that such were few, and we can see today that they remain Few. So what do we do? How does it read? The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Therefore, strap your boots on and sprint. Don't bother tying them. You can do that on the road. Make sure you got at least one leg in your trousers and hop pell-mell at furious speed to get out to that harvest. Is that how it reads? It says pray. In fact, more than pray. The word used here is stronger than everyday prayer. It encompasses the concept of beseeching, that is, of begging, entreating. Some translations capture this by adding the word earnestly. Pray earnestly. To whom, for what? I said earlier that the divine authority and identity and will of Jesus Christ was the string that unties this passage. Jesus is the sent one of God. He himself fully God, co-eternal and equal in glory and majesty and authority with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is the God-man. And his will is in perfect unity with the Father. When he tells you to pray for something, listen, you might pray for a loved one to recover from illness, and you hope that it is God's will to do so, but you don't know. I might pray for the strength to recover quickly from the surgery I had in February, and I hope it's God's will to make me entirely whole, but I don't know. God may will to teach me humility through extended hardship. He may will to teach your loved one long-suffering and patience through illness. As he works all things together for good for his people. You don't know. I don't know. Jesus knows. If you offer a righteous prayer, you do so in good faith that God will do justly, but you don't know the outcome. Your prayer may be according to the revealed will of God's desire for holiness but it may be against God's secret will, and the secret things we learn from Moses belong to the Lord. You don't know, but Jesus knows. 
the secret things. And when our Lord Jesus Christ commands us to make a specific prayer request, he knows we're not firing rounds into the dark. When he tells you to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, that's his father he's talking about. When he tells you to pray earnestly to send forth workers, he calls it his harvest. That is his father's harvest. His father owns the harvest, and therefore, so does the son. His father knows the status of the harvest. That is, that it's plenteous, and therefore, so does the son. Listen, therefore, Jesus knows the father intends to send workers out into his harvest that this prayer will not come back with the answer of no. There are some always yes prayers in the Bible. Book of James talks about one prayer that's an always yes, the faithful prayer for wisdom. And I'm convinced by the nature of the one giving the command to send this prayer and by the enduring condition of the multitudes, the laborers, and the harvest that this is another always yes prayer. So pray it. Pray it, and God will provide laborers. But be warned. All prayers are dangerous. They're dangerous to your comfort. They're dangerous to your pride. Pray for strength. And God will give you increasingly heavy things to lift. This resonates with me ever since I took up the sport of powerlifting in 2018. Praying for strength is dangerous to your comfort and your pride. Pray for, pray for patience, and God will provide you with chances to wait. You know this. Some would say, don't pray for patience. That's not me. I just say, do it with open eyes, knowing what is sure and certain to come your way. Pray for God to send laborers into his harvest and be warned. God might answer, why not you? Why not you? We're not all Jonah to be sent to a faraway country, a hostile country. You might be sent to your own country, even your own county, and find even that to be hostile. And if you find that to be the case, remember that the harvest is plenteous, but sometimes the harvest is surrounded by weeds, sometimes by plants that aren't ready to be plucked for Christ, but the harvest remains. You may be sure of it, so keep walking past the ones who aren't ready and seek the harvest that the Lord of the harvest has already prepared for you. But pray. Pray that God would send laborers even if it's you. Pray and believe he'll do it because he will. Brothers, sisters, look where we've been. All authority is his. His will is in perfect unity with the Father's will. So as you go about the business of performing your various callings that God has placed on your life, keep your eyes sharp, your heart awake, see the multitudes, and may God grant you to be moved with compassion on them, on the ones that are weak and scattered and leaderless and shepherdless. When you see that, believe that the harvest is plentiful. Recognize the workers are, the workers are few. And seek the face of the only one who can send workers into that harvest. Pray 
to him to send workers and don't rule out, don't rule out that the worker that he sends might be you. Pray with me. Mighty God, there is no there is no unforeseen path to you. There is no uncertainty to you. You have made all things and all things are in your hands, Lord, and you know you know the status of the harvest and you have power and a desire to send wisdom to us through your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ to know which ones we should seek, which ones we should labor for, and Lord, to pray. God, let us pray often. Let us pray right now. God, send workers into the harvest wherever it is. Reap your people, Lord. Wake our hearts and open our eyes to your people that you have prepared for us. For me and for that brother, for that sister, Lord, for us individually. Show us, God. Let us have courage and boldness. Lord, sometimes to fail. That we might increase our courage to keep going. Lord, all, all have sinned and fall short of your glory. Lord, we all need you every hour. Those who have your spirit living in us by the power of Jesus Christ, having received your forgiveness, we still need you. That doesn't stop, Lord, but there are some that you have not touched yet. God, reach out and touch them with your Holy Spirit and show us those people. Grant us courage, strength, and an awake, feeling, compassionate heart. I ask all this, Lord, in the name of the one under whose feet you are placing every enemy, in the name of the king from the tribe of Judah, the only wise king, Jesus Christ. Amen.